Hello and welcome to My Roots Are Showing with myself, Nadina Regan. This is the podcast where we talk to well-known people about their lives and about what has made them who they are today. My guest this time out is the author and musician Tracy Thorne. For many people, Tracy Thorne is still perhaps best known for being one half of Everything But The Girl, the band she formed in 1982 with her husband Ben Watt. They released several hit records and of course the Todd Terry remix of their 1994 track Missing can still regularly light up dance floors all around the world. Tracy's also a solo artist with several albums to her name. But in the past few years, she's carved out a brilliant second career, or should I say third career, as an acclaimed author. The last time I came around your way with this podcast, I was telling you about some books that I was really looking forward to reading for my holiday. Over the course of the 10 days, I read Camilla Shamsie's Home Fire. Absolutely loved it. Great novel. There was also Sadie Jones with The Snakes, another brilliant fiction, and the debut novel from Anne Griffin. Also a really good read. But it all got me to thinking. When I was growing up in Skibreen, I didn't actually read very many female authors. And it wasn't a deliberate thing. They just weren't really there when I was a kid. I'm glad to say things are very different now. And Tracy Thorne is very much part of that. She is one of my favourite authors of the past few years. I keep multiple copies of her books around the house so I can give them to friends as presents. And if you like great non-fiction, you should check out her entire back catalogue. That includes her memoir, Beds of Disco Queen, her book Naked at the Albert Hall, which is an examination of singing, and her most recent book, the memoir Another Planet, A Teenager in Suburbia, in which Tracy tracks back over her early years growing up in Brookmans Park, a little village just outside London. We cut up recently ahead of her appearance at the Mount to Sea Festival, and she had a lot to say. We talked about her experiences growing up, her move into music, what it was like guesting with Massive Attack and those amazing tracks, protection and better things, and much, much more besides. So I hope you have the guts for an hour free to sit back, relax and enjoy this. This is Tracy Thorne's My Roots Are Showing. Tracy Thorne, you are very welcome to My Roots Are Showing. It is a delight to have you on board. How are you? Thank you. I'm good, thanks. Yeah. Good. Well, look, congratulations, first off, on the new book, uh, Another Planet, um, but also on your previous two, Naked at the Albert Hall and Beds at Disco Queen, both of which I read with great enjoyment when they came out. Well, back in 2013 was your first book, yeah. then 2015, and now, of course, the new book. This uh, is quite the change of career for you in a way, because we all knew you uh, through the well, the 80s and 90s as the incredibly successful vocalist for Everything But The Girl and, of course, a vocalist for other people as well, notably Massive Attack, of course. So I, I guess people might have felt that you already had an incredibly successful career, nine million album sales, um, your own solo uh, recordings as well. Then came the books. Why did you decide to write books? I mean, it doesn't seem that big a leap for me. You know, I was a songwriter, um, uh, you know, and I've written countless songs in all that time as well. 
Um, the thing I took a break from was the performing side of it, which I just kind of felt I'd had enough of, really, you know, the going on tour, the having to make pop videos. Um, so, you know, I, I'm still making music as well, but I think it's more that I've just, as I've got older, you know, wanted different outlets for my writing, really, and, and, and space in which to expand on things a bit more, you know, tell stories in greater depth. Um, and that's what writing books has allowed me to do. Well, in the new book, I think you quote, pretty sure it was your dad who's, who at one point said, I didn't know Tracy was that into music. Yeah, I mean, you know, for context, he said that in about um, 2013, after Bedsit Disco Queen had come out. So this is after my entire musical career. This is after the selling nine million albums, spending my entire 20s on tour, making videos, being on telly, making albums, then retiring for a bit to have kids, and then coming back to make more music and then write a book about it. And at that point, he said to my sister one day, apparently, I never knew Tracy was so into music. Unbelievable. Uh, but yeah. it does make me think back, though, to the first book, Beds of Disco Queen, where I think you've even said you sort of gave the pop single version of your life. You gave the glamour, you gave the offers of going on tour with you to the, you know, the the massive acclaim, the remix of Missing, which catapulted you into sort of global superstars. Uh, but you didn't maybe document the smaller realities of what it felt like to grow up uh, what was it 20 miles outside London yes in a small satellite town uh with a lot of in fairness quite boring realities you know just the humdrum existence of going home watching Carnation Street Mm. filling your teenage diary full of um I suppose teenage exploits which even at the time weren't necessarily that exciting to you but you were just living it uh so in a way this is like the the companion piece to beds at disco queen this this book another planet and was it important to you to be truthful and to reveal that other side yeah very much um I, there, there wouldn't be any point at all in writing a book like this unless i was prepared to be um quite open and truthful beds at disco queen almost starts at the point where my career is beginning, or at least the sort of glimmerings of it. So I, I skate pretty quickly over my childhood and early teens in that book. And really, even the mentions of my teens are all to do with music. It's, a, it's about sort of seeing the beginning of a career. Mm. Uh, so, you know, that was the story I told. But this book is very different. I mean, when you've already written a memoir, people would sort of think, well, how, how can you write another memoir? But life is long. And um, multi-layered and you know this is an entirely different story what were you like as a kid as a small kid I was very happy there I was um, good at school I was a avid reader I was you know hard-working enjoying what was a very conventional childhood and a very sort of safe easy childhood I could walk to the shops I could walk to school I could go out on my bike unsupervised and it was that sort of quite innocent time living in a very small self-contained place so as a child I was I think I was very happy and then I hit my teens and just gradually gradually started to become more curious about the world started to become aware of the fact that Brookman's Park where I was living was absolutely not the whole world and in fact was incredibly 
old-fashioned, stuck in a sort of time warp. You know, I started to learn more about attitudes and ideas out there in the world at large and realised that I was growing up in a very conservative place. You began keeping a diary, but it was a very unusual diary because you lied in it. And you didn't... Oh, I think everyone lies in their diary. <laughs> I think that's usual. <laughs> but you didn't document what actually happened to you. Well, that's, sometimes I did. Um, you know, going back through the diaries, there was, they were really valuable in terms of detail because there's lots of boring detail, which otherwise you would forget. And then I just began to notice the absences because there were kind of big things that happened during my teens, which I obviously do remember, and most of which I barely record, or I certainly don't record in any detail or what I felt about them. Um, but that struck me as interesting as a writer. That struck me as a really good starting point. To my mind, reading it, it made sense to me because of the personality that you've brought through your various books. You've spoken and written in the past about struggles with anxiety or shyness. And in a way, leaving a diary around with your innermost thoughts, that'd be too much, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, I was pretty convinced my mum was reading my diary anyway. Yeah. Um, So, you know, part of the secrecy is to do with just not having the words for things. So that sort of inarticulacy of when you're younger. But part of it was genuine alarm that I would actually be um, confessing things that she would then throw back at me. Uh, But obviously it does beg the question, you know, why are you writing a diary at all? Um, So I think I I had conflicted feelings about it, which again I think is interesting. Mm. Um, Well, it became a kind of artefact in a way, like you seem to regard it with as much curiosity as you do uh, seeing it as a document. Yes, absolutely. You know, in some respects, some of it could have been written by someone else. It is someone else, really. Mm. Um, When I read back, you know, entries from the 13-year-old me... That's such a long time ago, and so much has changed in my life since then that it is like doing research into someone else. Yeah. And you have to then, you know, be prepared to show yourself in that light. So, you know, I'm quite honest about the fact that my diary isn't particularly honest always, that it's not always very revealing, um, and that it's just a, a document a lot of the time of, of as, as you say, of absence of boredom um, and so you can sort of you sort of have to read between the lines of it mm-hmm. again I think there's a lot there mm-hmm. it's just not all quite put into words you were 16 when you began singing and this anecdote always makes me smile you got into a cupboard to a sing wardrobe yes. a wardrobe <laughs> to, to sing rebel rebel yes why did you do that well sheer shyness and not wanting anyone to be looking at me while I was doing it but you know I talk about that again here but this notion that there's obviously something ridiculous about that particularly the choice of song you know singing this anthem to rebelliousness but being too fearful to sing it in front of people but I actually defend myself on that saying you know that notion of having inspirational rebellious artists For people like me, timid people, they're essential. I would not have got anywhere in life without trailblazers who sort of lit a spark in me and got me out there. Um, Whereas, you know, brave people do it all by themselves. They're the ones just getting out there and do it. But the the forerunners, those those creative people who inspire you, they bring out even deeper creativity, I think, in people who wouldn't necessarily um, do it without a little kick. Well, back in the 90s... um 
for my money at least it was very important to see you in the magazines and on record because you were an example of a strong female vocalist who was out there on tour and often I used to buy all the magazines, Q, Vox, Hot Press, um, Melody Maker, The Enemy, and they were so male-led, mm. you know? And like in recent months, I've interviewed Viv Albertine and other um, female uh, musicians or former musicians who've sort of articulated what it felt like to not really have an example. Like mm. there was just no example. So like, did you have a very strong sense of yourself as being a little bit different for for the fact that you were there yeah totally but that was from the very beginning you know that was that was even stronger to be fair in the early 80s when there really were very few um, certainly the precursors throughout the 70s until the late 70s you know with the punk explosion and post-punk when suddenly more women appeared um but yes being in a minority all the time everywhere is is quite wearing and so I was very aware of, you know, the the importance of, of being a woman in public. I'm never keen on the, the definition of being a strong woman um, because I, I think that puts too much pressure on women performers of any kind. Mm. I think what we all want is, is varied women and complex women and women who are allowed to be fully human. Just um, so people. Exactly that, exactly that. Um, so in a way, I still feel that that's what I'm doing. And the more you know, layers of myself as a person I reveal, the more I'm, I hope, trying to add to this reality of me being out there as a complex woman, you know, and now people can see my strengths and my weaknesses. And I think, I think that's really important. That's what we lack, I think, with underrepresentation of anyone, whether it's women or, you know, minority groups, that when people do appear, they're supposed to kind of represent everything or be a perfect example of whatever group they're supposed to be representing. And you just, as you say, you just want people to be allowed to be human. You're very sympathetic in the new book to the experiences of Chrissy Hind in her memoir because she got a bit of flack for how she characterised an exp- one particular experience and actually maybe just in your own words you might describe it and your response to it because I suppose, again, Chrissy Hind seen as very much a strong woman and then published a memoir where she got attacked by feminists for how she characterized uh what they said was a sexual assault yeah she talks about you know when she was a very young woman and um where she grew up wanting to hang around with sort of biker gangs you know she's trying to get into you know who are the people having fun here who are the exciting people and it was biker gangs and she would would hang around with them um, and yes she describes what I think was regarded from the outside as very clearly a sexual assault but she, she sort of takes it upon herself to say well you know um, she almost talks about it as though it was kind of initiation that you know that was she had to prove her strength to become part of you know the gang to be taken seriously by the guys and yeah she did get some stick for it I think to her credit she stood up for herself I don't think Chrissy High needs me to come and defend her here um, but I, the reason I talked about it at all was absolutely not to revive anyone having a go at her but just to talk about how for her generation she really was without female rock and roll role models so she was creating the role models that people like me and others afterwards would come along and follow. So, you know, she, to her, the only rock and roll role models were male. So inevitably, 
you know you might end up thinking well this is this is the way to be a kind of outsider rebel figure you know you've got to go along with this sort of thing and um so i just think it's important to acknowledge that in you know previous generations and generations to whom we owe a massive debt i remember when i started interviewing bands and i thought it was a totally normal question at the time i was 19 to ask bands about their groupies yeah (laughs) because (laughs) i was i'd grown up reading you know q magazine where that seemed to be like part of the narrative totally and there were books published talking about the life of being a Led Zeppelin groupie yeah. or the life of being, you know, it was just how we talked back yeah. then. I mean, I think the Me Too movement has obviously done a huge amount of work in unpicking some of those kind of ingrown cliches. Yeah. Uh, but now you look back and we just wouldn't, we simply wouldn't characterize things the same way. Um, I love that line where in the book you talk about how the only available identity was male mm-hmm. if you wanted to be in music. And I think that that has to some extent diminished now but do you feel that do you feel it's better yes and but you you know people are making efforts to make it better um i was just reading this week of emily evis booking glastonbury and trying very hard to you know bring up the numbers of women performers there and she was talking about how difficult that still was that she would be having conversations with some people involved in booking it who would offer you know what they'd come up with so far and it would be a list of 10 male acts and she'd say no I'm really sorry you've got to get some women in there and she would sometimes be greeted with people going well god what are you saying these are 10 great acts you know and she'd still have to say yes I know they're great but you know we're trying to change something here so I'm very aware that it's 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 kind of changing but slowly and there is still resistance you're still going to meet people who will just say oh everyone's got to be there on their merit you can't you know you can't deliberately try and choose women and but it's so unconscious of, bias as well. If you point yeah. out unconscious bias and then people make efforts to uh, be aware of how they select and the fact that they will tend to select people who are like themselves. Yeah. And if men are the people who are consistently in power over generations, then it is simply a cliche that they will select themselves. To it come is. And, 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 and people can be very resistant to having their unconscious bias pointed out to them. Um, so it is a tricky one. But you know all credit someone like Emily Evis you know again once you get a woman in a position of power then the likelihood is that they might you know be able to actually set in you know train a a process of change when I interviewed your husband Ben Watt some years back I asked him about how he felt when he was going out on stage and he said that he always felt perfectly fine that his heart rate actually drops yeah he's a bit weird I think and I couldn't believe it (laughs) you know I I found it some kind of alien yeah it it just it stuck with me you know I was like your heart rate drops yeah well I think you know for him that sense of actually being in front of an audience offers him a level of um, almost comfort because he takes great enjoyment and fulfillment out of um, you know the feedback you get from an audience for him that's what it's all about that's what makes it meaningful I'm the opposite for me I kind of would quite happily make work and just you know sort of then not really even know what happened to it you know it could just be sort of out there and I'd, I'd get on to the next one mm. um, yeah in, in your book uh, Naked at the Albert Hall there was kind of this hanging question in it as to whether you would get back up on stage again yeah. to sing and to perform yeah well I think towards the end of the book I was going through a phase of actually trying to brace myself to do it I had a plan to go along to a singing event that I was going to take part in which I ended up cancelling um, I was having conversations with myself about 
you know, am I going to do this? There's an episode in that book where I go for a little course of hypnotherapy to try and get over stage fright. But at the end of the book, I do actually come to the conclusion that um, I need to kind of stop beating myself up about this. You know, I had reached a point in my life where if you'd said to me, are you happy? The answer would have been an absolutely resounding yes. And it still is. Um, And if you said to me, do you feel there's anything missing from your life? I would say no. So I can't see, for me, the logic in going back to doing something that actually brought, you know, lots of kind of anguish and tormented feelings into my life. Mm. There's a moment actually in Beds of Disco Queen where you talk a little bit about the experience of writing, recording and then doing promo with Massive Attack back in the 1990s and that amazing track Protection and then Better Things, like so many gorgeous moments uh, in your collaborations with them. But you would go and do a radio appearance together and <laughs> you talk about how like it was live, but actually it was you who was live. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, as did tend to be the case in those days with, you know, programmed music, electronic music, dance music, often live appearances were just PAs from vocalists. Mm. And so some of the appearances I did with them on radio were just that. I think at that stage, really, it was just incredibly difficult to recreate a track like that in a radio studio. Absolutely, but it it wasn't really that that I was thinking of. I just thought that the emotional toll it may have taken on you versus the band to have to go in and perform when they didn't have the same level of stress or pressure. I wondered how that played out in terms of your exhaustion level or just your capacity to, I guess, go from day to day, because it would seem to me that it would be debilitating. No, I don't remember it being that. I mean, to be fair, we didn't do it that often. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the trip I described was a promo trip to New York. And so it's not like we were doing this for like weeks on end. Um, it was these were fairly sporadic appearances, and I could see the logic of it. Look, it made me laugh more than anything. You know, looking through at them in the control room, like with a cup of tea in their yeah, hand, yeah, yeah. doing a live appearance. <laughs> <laughs> what were they like, actually? Oh, I mean, again, I try to describe them. I mean, that sort of um, vibe they give off that they're, you know, a gang. Mm-hmm. I don't mean a bad gang. I mean, you know, a good gang like you know you just want to be part of their gang you can never quite be part of their gang they've all got nicknames for each other they've all known each other forever daddy g daddy g 3d mushroom you know um so it was sort of hilarious and obviously like i think a lot of people who collaborated with them for a short period of time you just feel a bit like an outsider you can't ever become a fully paid up member of this wonderful gang so you're just along for the ride Mm. but it was great you know it was i mean for me um you know, I was at that stage where we were having a bit of a new lease of life. There were sort of exciting things happening left, right and centre, mm. which was and, unexpected. And it was sort of part of that switch uh, that you made in some respects to being thought of as a more acoustic-led um, outfit to suddenly your vocal soundtracking some of the biggest hits of the 90s. Mm. I mean, that was just a fact. I mean, that remix of Missing... There was you couldn't walk into any shop mm. in the nineties or any club mm. and not hear it. It was a, an absolute, uh, you know, a stormer of a track. And how did it feel to you, being maybe not the biggest clubber, to be the voice of this anthem? Well, I loved it. I mean, I've always, ever since we started, you know, then having remixes done, I thought actually for someone like me it was perfect because it meant my voice could be out there essentially on tour without me needing to go um you know when your records are played in a club and hundreds of people are dancing to them 
Uh, there's there's an enormous satisfaction in that, and it does feel like your music is is being kept alive mm-hmm. every time a DJ plays it, and people put their hands in the air and dance to it. You know, it's it's got another lease of life. I was always very interested in your vocal because I think there's such a strong melancholic strand running through it, and I think sometimes that's what provides that little spark of magic when it's paired with an electronica um, backdrop. Yeah, is that how you feel about it? Yeah, totally sad bangers. <laughs> Everyone loves sad bangers. That's <laughs> you know. what I'm here for, essentially. It's what I was put on God's earth for. Sad bangers. <laughs> but there is that vibe as with, like, say, Dido and Eminem or whatever. It's this complete marriage of opposites. Yeah, but it's a beautiful thing. You know, I do think the dance floor can be an emotional place. Mm. I think you go out there, you've probably partaken of something that slightly lowered your inhibitions... Um, you start dancing, which induces sort of euphoric feelings as well. And then you're just wide open. Mm. So, you know, something, anything, you know, great disco tracks often have that, you know. Um, you know, a, a sad lyric or a, a sort of sad but defiant lyric. Um, it just it just gets you where you're, as I say, where you're wide open. And mm. I think that's really powerful. It's, you know, in, it's... In a way, it's more powerful than just sort of sitting at home moping, listening to a sad song, which is almost too perfect. You know, the mood and the music all sort of of one. Where's the kind of where's the grit here? You know, where's the tension? Hmm. Whereas on a dance floor, um, there's something there's, there's something exciting happening. There's a bit of friction happening hmm. between the, you know, the mood and the the music, the lyric and the beats, and that's when you know sparks start to fly. When you began singing and writing songs were the lyrics at that point you know because some people will they'll write a song and the lyrics will be to do 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 da da you know it won't be as much about the sense as it will be about how the line scans or mm. how it makes rhythmic sense in the context of the song and we all know it we hear it in some of the most successful songs but even listening to your most recent album just called record it's so obvious that you're a very intensely lyrical writer. So when you started out scribbling lyrics, was it very important to you to get it right? Yeah, I mean, I always write lyrics while I'm singing them. I very rarely just write something, you know, a verse down on a bit of paper, very occasionally. But they come to me as sung words. So you're right, in that sense, they have a, you know, a rhythm to them, they have to scan. Um, I, I find that... Um, actually inspires the process of the song quite often you come up with a good opening line or you come up with a good opening couplet and then you know that sort of sets your template okay this is how long the line is so then you know where the next ones might be going and that in itself just triggers the process Um, so yeah I mean I'm sure I've got better at it I'm sure if I look at my early songs they were they were pretty simple Um, but there's something about the style that I write in that I think has been there from the beginning there's a kind of directness I mean a, a sort of plainness I'm not an you know I'm not an elaborately flowery lyric writer at all um you know you'll you won't come to me for sort of rolling seas and misty moors and <laughs> um you know in some ways they're quite prosaic but I think what I'm always interested in what I'm trying to get to is the sort of truth of people's experience Mm. and just telling a story. When you were growing up, you read a lot of books by male writers as well. You read some great writers. (laughs) I mean, you were into Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre. Philosophy was very much your thing. Uh, No female writers, though. No, I mean, that 
it really took me aback when I looked at this period I went through in my sort of later teens, you know, and I was trying to, you know, reach out into, you know, discovering ideas and thoughts outside this little place I was living. So as you say, I, I read Camus and Sartre. I read all of George Orwell, you know, fantastic stuff, still love it. Um, I had my copy of On the Road that I carried around with me thinking that made me a beatnik. But I look back and the glaring omission is any women writers. You know, I was reading Jean-Paul Sartre, but not Simone de Beauvoir. Um, and that's not to say I should have been reading, you know, complicated feminist theory, but I just think it would have been good to have had um, some women's stories and experience to counter. I think I was inwardly already absorbing this notion that, you know, men's thought was the kind of, you know, the thing to aspire to. The other problem, as I always thought, was that sometimes the women who succeeded were women who wrote in a style that was very masculine. So a woman might come to the fore, like, for example, Margaret Atwood um, has been famous for decades, but you might not get the smaller story told by a female writer, or if it is there, it's pushed into the pink-covered books. Well, or just very looked down on. I mean, again, you know, this notion that when women write about the domestic it's seen as a small domestic novel when men do it's seen as you know the human condition being minutely um observed Mm -hmm. so again you know i i don't think there is such a thing particularly as male writing and female writing i just again i do think there's human beings writing but there is a tendency to look down on women's recordings of either their own experience or you know the product of their imagination and just trivialize it just Mm -hmm. treat it as though it's it's little and domestic and petty. You've daughters yourself and they have reached adulthood. Can you see clear oceans of difference in the lives they've led so far to the to the teenage years you had? Yeah, very different to mine. I mean, much more open, obviously. They've been well, they've been brought up by more open minded parents, so they haven't had that sort of repression um, being you know, lowered upon their heads since they, you know, entered puberty. So that's been a complete difference. Um, They've grown up in a city in London, so they've had access to, um, you know, all that a city has to offer and have grown up with a much more diverse group of people, you know, their friends, their school friends, people they pass on the street every day. Um, So that is completely different. And, you know, they are much, watching them in their teens, I think they've been much more... Um, sort of aware of their own rights as a human being, which I think as a young woman I was not taught to be very aware of my rights. You know, I think we were very, we were very naive and ignorant, and that made us pliable. Um, and I've, I've seen my daughters who are so much better informed, and it just means that they're much, um, they're much clearer about what constitutes being treated, you know, in a bad way or a good way. One of the things I think about becoming an adult to yourself is that you come to see your own parents as fallible, as just human beings yeah. separate from you. And there's a process of that happening in your latest book. Yeah. And it's hard sometimes, I think, for you to reconcile how you once thought of your parents with how you now view them. And, and maybe you would have done things differently or you might have changed things. But is, is it hard sometimes to, to go back through time as a writer and sitting at the computer and actually reliving an anecdote or an experience and just thinking, gosh, 
why was I like that? I was such an ass. <laughs> Not saying you were an yeah, ass. Yeah, no, I was. There are occasions when I am, definitely. Um, yeah, you, you have to just detach a little bit at some points and just think, okay, this is this story here is the raw material and I'm making something of it in this piece of writing. Um, but, you know, the feelings about my parents ended up just being mixed and complicated. I don't think... Some people have said, oh, did you manage to reach some kind of closure by writing this? And I, I just don't really think that's true. Um, you know, I can't undo any of the stuff that was done in my teens. That was it. That's the story of my teens. I might wish it had been otherwise, but that's done. Um, you know, we, we made some kind of peace later on, so we ended up on better terms. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's... Again, I think it... The relationship I describe with my parents is quite a common one. And lots of people have, have said to me, oh, I recognise that. You know, that sense of um, coming from a very conservative, narrow background with parents who are ambitious for you and want you to move beyond that. But then when you do, um, they sort of semi-reject you because mm. you're no longer part of this <laughs> narrow, conservative culture that they have come from. And these days looking forward you've put a lot of your life into these books and into your songs does it make you feel vulnerable to expose not simply your parents lives but but your feelings your thoughts it doesn't really I mean I do I do talk in the book about the fact that you know when you're the writer and you're the one in control there's a lot I'm not putting in there um you you are able to make the decision about where you want to draw the line, what you want to put in and what you want to leave out. And for me, the the greatest difference and the, the thing about it that's been so empowering has just been me now being the one telling my story. For 20 years, I was written about by other people. Did you, you and that's read much those, yeah. more exposing yeah, and I, much more frustrating. See, I thought that was remarkable in the book. You talked about being afraid of interviewers. Yeah. Actually afraid of them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, so say somebody would have come in from the enemy or... Yeah, especially in those days as well. You know, the music press is a much gentler thing. Well, it barely exists anymore even. But, you know, the late 70s and the 80s, um, which was, you know, a long part of my career, the music press was brutal, much more brutal than it is now. Mm. And we were bloodied, all of us. Um, And it, you know, it only had to happen to you a couple of times and then you were defensive and and frightened of journalists and I, I've told this to journalist friends now they're absolutely shocked it's just it literally has never occurred to them the amount of power they have in the interview encounter it, ne- um, it didn't occur to me no. for years well, yeah it, did, it just yeah. it never struck me because I think most journalists who are music journalists regarded as an extreme privilege to be talking to somebody whose music they love yeah so it just wouldn't have occurred to anyone no um and then of course there there is the the pressure which you document in the book of the journalists being seen to give their hot take yeah on a band but do you think there's more sympathy now because twitter can be a rough enough place yeah i mean the, i suppose the difference now is that so many of us now have direct access to you know an audience or whatever so we can tell our own stories now via social media you know people are much more in control of their own narrative now that has its own drawbacks obviously because it also means your audience have direct access to you so you have to put up with feedback on stuff you say that's the flip side of it but it it does remove that 
what used to be the case, which is that people writing about you could sort of create a version of you out there that you had no means of countering. And once it got set in people's imagination, that was who you were. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, it could just be annoying. You just felt like... Um, and don't forget, again, being a woman in music meant that I was mostly being written about by men um, and mostly being interviewed by men. I mean, that is still the case, still irritatingly the case. Um, I did a promo trip with the last album record that came out last year, and I went to um, Paris and Brussels, I think, for a couple of days. And I was interviewed for two solid days and not a single woman. And at the end of it, I was fit to you know, punch a wall. Not because anyone had been unpleasant to me or done anything wrong, but I was just so angry that this was still the case and that I'd written a really overtly feminist record and that, I mean, you know, that it hadn't actually even occurred to any of the editors of these, you know, to maybe pick one of their women journalists. Perhaps they didn't have any. Um, so again, it, it just becomes frustrating because, you know, you just get frustrated by being made to feel like you're, a, you know, you're the other, you're, you know. The exception. Yeah. Do you feel creatively fulfilled now? Well, I'm still creatively busy and, and inspired. <laughs> well, um, I mean, you're not done. Yeah, clearly. not at all. Yeah. I'm, I'm always kind of excited about the next thing. I mean, I'm just making notes for something new at the moment. I'm oh, actually, really? my mind's like over somewhere else. So every time I do a new book, a book event, I've got to get myself back to yeah, I can where imagine. I was two, three years ago. So what's the new book? So I've signed a new book, which is, um, I'm basically writing a book, which is, um, it's non-fiction again, but it's the story of my friendship with uh, Lindy Morrison, who was the drummer with the Mm -hmm. go-betweens. So, but it's going to have all sorts of twists and turns. But it is a book that's going to be, at least in part, about this notion of women in music, who tells their stories, how does their story get told, how do they get written out of stories, and what it was like for me as a woman meeting her in the 80s, um, a sort of inspirational woman who was older than me. And yeah. Is that coming out so from Canongate? It is. All right. So we'll yes. be looking forward to that. And um, yeah, finally, um, I just wanted to ask about, like, obviously a lot of the people um, in, in your memoir, I mean, it it's a long time ago now and, and your parents have passed away, sadly. Um, but a lot of the people will forgive you, I'm sure, if you're writing about Dan that you kissed at the disco or whoever. But how do your family and specifically Ben feel about being characterised in the books? Because you did characterise your, your early romance and I can imagine that writing those pages must have been tricky. I don't think I say anything about Ben in this book, do I? No, in the, in the first book. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I think I think both of us because we're both writers, I think it means that we each have a sort of instinctive understanding that, um, you know, that you have a right to write things. Do you know what I mean? That people being written about um, can't sort of, you know, silence you by saying you can't tell that story. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. But, you know, I, I'm equally at ease with him writing about me, which he has done in books he's written I mean obviously we read each other's stuff he's the first person who reads my first rough draft of a book Um, and if he were to say I really hate that description then I would obviously 
um, take it out. But on the other hand, I think both of us give each other a lot of leeway because I think we have a lot of respect for the fact that if you've got this far and it's made it to this draft, then it means you really you mean that. You know, you've thought long and hard about it, and there's a reason why you want to write this. And same with I your marriage. That. Yes. You know, when you got married, it was what? How many years after you started seeing oh, each other? I don't know, twenty-seven or something. So, like, you really <laughs> meant it by that point, right? Yes. <laughs> don't want to rush into things. <laughs> Well, um, just to play us out, is there a track that makes you think of your childhood days or your teenage days that was inspirational to you? Well, I mean, one of the tracks that it was funny because when I when I finished this new book, Another Planet, I I sort of wrote the end on my time. I thought I sat back and thought, ah, this time I haven't written a book about music. And then I started to make a playlist of all the tracks and songs and bands that I mention in. And when I got up to about three hours worth, I thought, I think I have written a book about music. I think it's just, whatever I write, whatever I do, it just creeps into everything. In this book, it's in the margins. Yeah, in the other it's book, in the margins, but there's an awful the lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. But I would choose probably Another Girl, Another Planet, because that just feels like the song of this book. All right, well, Tracy Thorne, it's been an absolute pleasure and the very best of luck with the book promotion and indeed the writing of the new book. Thank you. Thanks once again to Tracy Thorne. And that, of course, was the track Another Girl, Another Planet from The Only Ones. And Tracy's new book is called Another Planet, A Teenager in Suburbia, and it's out now. You might also be interested to know that Tracy will be back in Dublin for another talk in May. She appears at the International Literature Festival on Sunday, May 26th. More details are available from their website. And that is it from me, Nadina Regan, for another episode of My Roots Are Showing. If you'd like to see who I'll have on the podcast next, or if you'd like to follow me generally, I am on Twitter at at Nadina Regan. And you can follow my podcast page at My Roots Are Show. Till the next time, do take care. <laughs>